The time is now. Volume 5, Episode 90. This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, your host of the podcast and the vice chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. You know, very rarely do we go many episodes, if any, without mentioning the EEOC, the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, at some point in an episode. Usually, though, it's me or one of my guest attorneys talking about the EEOC and some action or initiative that it took. I am, however, now extremely honored to let the EEOC speak for itself finally in this two-part one-on-one conversation with EEOC Commissioner Keith Sonderling, who is gracious enough to come on to the podcast and talk to all of you about so many issues that employers and employees are facing. Commissioner Sonderling was confirmed by the United States Senate on September 22, 2020 to be a commissioner on the EEOC for a term that expires July 1, 2024. He previously served as the commission's vice chair. As if that would not be impressive enough, prior to his confirmation with the EEOC, Commissioner Sonderling served as the acting and deputy administrator of the Wage and Hour Division at the United States Department of Labor, which, as you may well know, administers and enforces federal labor laws, including the Fair Labor Standards Act, the Family and Medical Leave Act, and the labor provisions of the Immigration and Nationality Act. While he was at the Wage and Hour Division, Commissioner Sonderling oversaw enforcement, outreach, regulatory work, strategic planning, performance management, communications, and stakeholder engagement. Before joining the Department of Labor in 2017, Commissioner Sonderling was a partner at the Gunster Law Firm in West Palm Beach, Florida, where he practiced labor and employment law. And in 2012, then-Governor Rick Scott appointed the commissioner to serve as the chair of the Judicial Nominating Committee for Appellate Courts in South Florida. I am extremely excited to have Commissioner Sonderling with us today. Commissioner Sonderling, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you for having me. And I want to say, you know, long-time listener, first-time caller, but you you get it. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, old sports talk radio uh, lines. Um, This is really what makes, to me, uh, the podcast so interesting and so valuable uh, is to be able to do this and have, you know, someone like you uh, join the podcast, let alone listen to the podcast. So uh, I I really can't thank you enough. And I hope that the listeners and and know that the listeners will really um, take a lot out of uh, this discussion today. So thanks so much again. Yeah, well, I want to thank you. I know you put a lot of time and effort into this podcast. It's a great resource for, you know, everyone, for the plaintiff's bar, for the management bar, for HR professionals. Um, You really keep everybody up to date on all aspects of employment law. So it is greatly appreciated and honored to be here. Well, and I could just go the entire hour or so just talking about that and, and having some nice words about me, but I, that's not what people are here to, to listen for. So, uh, but, but another time, obviously very appreciated. So uh, we're going to try to get into as much as we can uh, while we have you. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about EEOC enforcement issues, uh, regulatory compliance, uh, some things that the EEOC has been doing uh, with opinion letters, talk about 2021 hot topics. So there's, there's so much to get into. Um, but why don't we start at least with what the EEOC looks like and what the dynamics are? I mean, people know the EEOC by name, by acronym, but many people still don't know who the EEOC really is, what its makeup is, and how it functions. So maybe we could spend a few minutes, if you don't mind, talking about you know the makeup of the EEOC and what the general overview uh, is of you know your commissioner duties. For, for sure, 
you know, the last several months have brought some of the most significant changes to the EEOC in years. In September 2020, um, I was confirmed with two other commissioners. And for the first time since 2016, it's a full five-member slate of commissioners. The uh, Republicans now have a 3-2 majority, and that's the first time the Republicans have a majority since uh, 2008. You know, the new EEOC, you know, the EEOC as we are right now, actually started in May of 2019 when Janet Dillon was confirmed after almost two years of going through the Senate confirmation process. Um, when she was confirmed in May of 2019, she became uh, the chair. I was originally nominated in July of 2019. My Senate confirmation process took about 14 months. Um, it is just a very interesting, fascinating process uh, that takes a lot of people a long time. So when I was confirmed in September, I was named uh, the vice chair at the time. So um, more changes occurred in January with the inauguration of President Biden. Um, at, on Inauguration Day, President Biden designated uh, Commissioner Charlotte Burroughs to be chair Charlotte Burroughs and Commissioner Jocelyn Samuels to, to replace me as vice chair. So um, let's start with uh, Chair Charlotte Burroughs. Uh, she was originally nominated in 2014, and she's actually in her second term. She was renominated and reconfirmed in 2019. Mm -hmm. um, prior to joining the EEOC, she was actually uh, at the Department of Justice as an Associate Attorney General. Before that, she served as the General Counsel for um, Ted Kennedy on the Senate Help Committee. Then um, there's Vice Chair Jocelyn Samuels. She was confirmed with me in September before joining the EEOC. She was uh, the executive director at the Williams Institute at UCLA Law School in California. She had served previously in the Obama administration. She was the head of uh, civil rights for HHS. She also served as the acting um, DOJ civil rights. Um, and before that, uh, a while ago, she actually was a career uh, attorney here um, at the EEOC. So she's got a lot of experience in this world. Then there's a uh, former chair, now commissioner, Janet Dillon. I said she was confirmed in May of 2019. She served as chair until uh, January of 2021. Um, she comes from the corporate world before this. She served as general counsel of U.S. Airways, JCPenney, and Burlington uh, stores. She was also an attorney uh, at Skadden. Uh, then there's uh, myself, and thank you for that very nice intro. And the fifth commissioner is a Republican, uh, Andrea Lucas. She was confirmed with me in September. She was a labor and employment attorney here in Washington, D.C. at uh, Gibson Dunn. Um, the general counsel, which is also a Senate-confirmed presidential appointment, her name is uh, Sharon Gustafsson. Um, she was confirmed, when she was confirmed in August of 2019, she actually became the first woman to serve as general counsel of the EEOC. She practiced uh, labor and employment law for almost 30 years before joining the EEOC. And she's well known for representing the plaintiff in the landmark pregnancy discrimination case at the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, Young versus UPSs. So we all have terms. They're five-year terms. The first term comes up. Uh, they come up every July. The first uh, term is uh, Vice Chair Samuels. Um, her turn ends in July of 2021. Then um, Commissioner Dillon is July of 2022. Then uh, Chair Burroughs is July of 2023. My term ends July 2024. And Commissioner Lucas' term ends July of 2025. And the general counsel's term goes through um, 2023. Do the terms get affected by uh, who's in, you know, what, what the political administration is in D.C.? No, we're, they're, they're set terms. Everyone's nominated for a five-year term. You know, depending on whether or not you get to serve the whole term, depends on when you get confirmed in the Senate. So I actually started with four years left on my term. Um, and then, but no, these are set terms. You're confirmed by the Senate. And uh, the, the only wrinkle is, you know, once the next uh, Republican comes up, likely it would be replaced with a Democrat because the president gets, uh, the par president's party gets a maximum of three spots. So that's when the majority will change when uh, Commissioner Dillon's term ends in 2022. And as I mentioned at the top of this episode, uh, which is which is fascinating in terms of your background, um, as I said, you served as the acting and deputy administrator of the wage and hour division at the DOL prior to coming to the EEOC. Is that something uh, that's fairly unique in Washington, going from, you know, such a senior position, one agency to another? And, you know, do you, do you think that that's something that'll uh, really help you at the EEOC? Well, it helps me a lot because there's a lot of similarities between um, the Wage and Hour Division and EEOC. You know, both are civil 
law enforcement agencies, both uh, have litigation authority, both have offices around the country and are um, enforce some pretty complex uh, labor laws. So it was a really wonderful experience I had at DOL and really set me up nicely for here. Actually, uh, Eric Dryband, who was the general counsel here at the EEOC during the Bush administration, he was also the deputy administrator at Wage and Hour before coming to um, be the general counsel here at the EEOC. So it's absolutely uh, great training for sure. And so uh, there are five commissioners, one general counsel. What's the breakdown in terms of what the roles are uh, for the EEOC and, and what do you all do uh, from a day-to-day standpoint? Sure. So our job description is actually set by statute. Um, the chair has more responsibility than the other commissioners. and She has to deal with the administrative side of the agency. So dealing with the budget, dealing with the uh, personnel, dealing with all the uh, issues that related that are related to uh, running a national organization. The chair uh, importantly sets the commission's agenda for what the other commissioners vote on. So when there's new um, policy that needs to go through or new regulation, it's the chair who decides when that goes comes up for a vote. Terrific. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, enforcement and that aspect of the EEOC. And so if, if you can, for those who are also not familiar with the, the commission sort of breakdown in terms of, you know, how much of its role is an enforcement role, how much of it is regulatory compliance litigation. Can you break that down a little bit? Yeah, I will. Um, before I do that, I just want to um, also, it certainly deals with enforcement and regulation, what, you know, I do as a, as a commissioner. And the, and the question is, um, I just started in September. I don't know. I'll let you know in the future. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, commissioners develop and vote on all guidance, rules, regulations, policies, practices, procedures, and the agency's strategic plan and enforcement plan. The commissioners also authorize uh, litigation, which I'll talk about uh, in depth later on because that's changed significantly, as well as the authorization of amicus briefs. We also vote on the issuance of enforcement subpoenas um, for uh, documents and testimony, which, uh, as you know, uh, occurs um, during EEOC investigations um, when the EEOC needs certain documents. We also file uh, have the authority to file commissioner charges, so we have the ability essentially to file charges in our own name without a charging po- party, which I'll also talk about in a, in a little bit. But you know, sticking with enforcement, fiscal year 2020, the EEOC achieved record-breaking recoveries. We secured more than $535 million for victims of discrimination. Um, The EEOC resolved 165 lawsuits and achieved favorable results in 96% of all district court resolutions. Um, A total of 26,000 individuals received approximately $106 million in monetary relief through litigation resolutions. And that's our highest recovery since 2000. So both from an administrative side and a litigation side, you know, we're really having record-breaking recoveries uh, across the, bar- the board, and that really goes to the types of cases we're bringing and the quality of the work we're doing here at the EEOC. Did the pandemic uh, affect uh, the numbers at all? I mean, you're saying that they're record numbers, which is uh, fascinating. Did the pandemic have any impact on that? You know, we're still um, digging through the numbers and the actual breakdown of the, the cases and how, you know, what the claims were will be released hopefully soon. But we just have that top line data. Um, but I, I'm sure, as you know, when uh, big events occur, there's a lot of uh, enforcement after that. But as far as the specific claims relating to the pandemic, um, we don't have that data yet. But we're just, you know, very, very proud. And as I'm going to you know, tell you in detail, $333 million of that $535 million came from mediation conciliation, and other administrative relief. So I'm really proud of the way we're um, settling cases and really getting the money to the victims who need it the most. And that's interesting. And we'll get into that, as you said, in a little bit more detail, but it's it's interesting how so much of that uh, amount is uh, coming from a more conciliatory mediated effort as opposed to an adversarial litigated effort. Yeah. That's interesting. For, for those also who don't know how the EEOC works, when you mentioned before types of cases and without getting into the specific uh, breakdown and, and numbers or all that, is there a particular process that the commission goes through when determining what types of cases um, it's going to use its resources on or, or, or bring affirmatively? There is, you know, in fiscal year 2020, the EEOC had 
67,488 charges overall. That's pretty significant. Um, you know, we, and I will talk about, you know, how we get those larger cases and bring them to litigation, but, but really, you know, the, the key is reducing that charge, the, the amount of pending charges. And we've made significant strides in doing that. And I know, you know, from a, being a former private sector attorney, dealing with the EEOC, and I know you know this very much as far as you always hear about the charge backlog yeah. and, you know, how that delays justice. And so many cases, you know, with 67,000 cases in the door, you know, just this last year, it's really, you know, it's a lot of work for us here at the agency, but we've made such progress in reducing the backlog of private pending sector charges. Um, in fiscal year 2020, we ended the year with 41,951 charges. Although that may seem a lot, it's the lowest in 14 years. And this progress built on a 12.1% decline since the previous year. So, you know, and then out of those charges, the actual, uh, it went up 17.4 to 17.4% overall of those charges found uh, in favor of the employee. So that number continues to creep up as the amount of cases uh, continue to creep down. So we're very proud of um, both of those um, those statistics. But as far as, yeah, uh, but as far as, yeah, no, as far as, you know, how we prioritize cases and you know, how we move forward the cases that really need us the most to get those record-breaking recoveries. Also in the past year, there's been unbelievable transparency here at the EEOC. And the first one is with our systemic program. And systemic cases, we define them as pattern or practice, policy or class cases where discrimination has broad impact on an industry, profession, company, I think we've got a pause in the technology here. It looks like you froze. All right. Sorry about the uh, technical glitch there, uh, but we are back, Commissioner. Uh, and you were uh, just about to start talking about the systemic enforcement aspect uh, of the EEOC and how that is a big priority when it comes to um, the docket. The reason why we were so successful in enforcement is bringing the right cases. And, you know, the EEOC systemic program is, is very, very important. Uh, the EEOC defines a systemic case as a pattern pra or practice policy or class of action where the discrimination has a broad impact on industry, profession, company, or geographic location. This is a very, very powerful tool. And, you know, for so long, so many people on the outside have been asking, you know, tell us more about this program. It was one of the most common questions asked is how is it used? How does it work? And I'm proud to say that this past year, the EEOC gave full transparency for the first time into this program. Um, we have a new website that goes through a lot of common questions regarding the systemic program. And I think if you look at it, you can find this all on our website. It really demystifies the systemic program. So for the first time, you can find answers to questions such as, how is a systemic case initiated? And then how does it proceed? Who determines how a systemic investigation proceeds? What are examples of types and practices and policies that may involve systemic discrimination? And we actually list categories of systemic um, policies and practices, such as hiring, promotion, policies, layoff, reduction. And we actually give detailed examples. Um, then we also have specific examples about successful cases the EOC brought in systemic. So the systemic uh, enforcement has always been, or at least, you know, has for some time been a priority of the EOC, just seems that now there's a much more of an emphasis on the transparency aspect of it. As you said, answering questions that are commonly asked by both parties, employee and employer. That's right. And, you know, giving examples and just the more information we can give on this, it helps, like you just said, it helps employees and it helps employers. It helps everybody you know, know what we're looking for, know where we've been successful, know where there have been issues um, in systemic cases for everyone to comply, for employees to know and be able to identify potentially uh, policies that violate these laws. And for employers to look at this and say, wow, we have a similar policy to this. We need to change it. Thanks to the EEOC actually telling us examples of this. So I'm very proud of that website. It's at eeoc.gov slash systemic enforcement. EEOC, but all the websites I'll give you today, you can just find on our website, eeoc.gov. That's terrific. Uh, thank you. So um, going from an enforcement um, standpoint uh, to a little bit on the regulatory and compliance aspect of what the uh, commission is doing, 
And I want to start talking about how employers and employees uh, can best avoid the costly and time-consuming litigation uh, and settle cases early and what the EEOC has been doing uh, to try to prompt that a little bit more. You, you mentioned a few minutes ago uh, mediation. Well, I'd like to talk about that a little bit more. Sure. And, you know, this really kind of goes in the overarching um, principles of what is the EEOC's purpose? The EEOC was created by Congress to help victims of discrimination. So, you know, I believe that the EEOC should do everything to help people who have suffered from employment discrimination obtain relief as quickly as possible, right? How can you argue with that? That's our job. That's why we're here. And any way we can get money in workers' pockets who have had these laws, you know, violated against them is a good thing. And, you know, there's really three major changes that occurred recently to do that. The first, which you just mentioned, is the uh, mediation program. The next one is uh, our conciliation rule and then um, our litigation authority. And as I said earlier, conciliation and mediation last year recovered $322 million for workers. We got more money than we did in litigation in these two programs, and we got it faster than litigation because, as you know, um, what you do for a living, lawsuits can be very timely and they can be very costly and it can really um, delay justice. So um, specifically to mediation, there were um, significant changes made this past year. So in fiscal year 2020, the EEOC conducted 6,700 uh, mediations and collected 156.6 million for charging parties. Since 1999, we've conducted 245,000 mediations, resulting in more than 175,000 charges being resolved over th for over $3 billion to aggrieved individuals. And most notably about that, EOC's mediation program resolves charges within 100 days. So think about that. You know, 100 days is, is the average time for a case that goes into mediation. And that's, you know, very relatively quick compared to the years and years in um, litigation. And our mediators uh, at the EEOC, it's no cost. They're trained. They know this law. And you know, the people who participate in this program have had really great results and stories to tell from it. So last summer, uh, then-Chair Dillon announced a pilot program to expand access to the EEOC's mediation program. The program was called ACT, which is Access Categories in Time. So it generally allowed for... Um, more charges to go through mediation. So charges that were previously ineligible for mediation were now eligible. So we got more cases, um, people being allowed to actually mediate those cases. Most significantly was the time frame. So as you know, when an employer receives a charge of discrimination, oftentimes they also receive a letter from the EEOC saying, hey, within 20 days, mediate the case. And the employer says, we don't even know, you know, What's going on here? We don't even know the facts or the evidence. And um, although they would maybe like to mediate, they just don't have the information. So that really foreclosed a lot of really um, great potential mediations that could have been resolved, but it was just too soon. So expanding the, uh, the mediations, the ability to mediate with the EEOC at any time through the life of the charge really allows both the employee and the employer to get into it with the investigator a little bit, to review some of the, the create a position statement, get some of the evidence, and then, you know, actually go to mediate that instead of just saying, you only have 20 days and you can't do it. Um, the, pro the pilot program also allowed for virtual mediations, which, as you know, was uh, very, very uh, helpful during COVID, which has also gotten, uh, we, we invested in a lot of new technology to be able to do that um, during COVID. Is any of this mandatory by the EEOC? We know that there are a lot of federal judges out there who, for certain types of cases, uh, will require parties to go through at least one mediation session, um, typically early on in the case. Is, is any aspect of this mandatory to the EEOC? It is not mandatory, but as you, you can see uh, how I feel about it and the statistics <laughs> speak for themselves, it's really a program that should um, be used. So um, the new chair ended the pilot uh, program recently. Um, but there were some uh, permanent uh, parts of that pilot program that have now been incorporated, such as the virtual mediations. Also, that um, mediations are available at any time throughout the uh, life of the charge. So it really is a, a great program. Please uh, use it for all of you out there. You know, if you're in this situation, 
um, our mediators are highly trained and can really result, get a great result for both the employer and the employee. And so how does mediation differ from the second one that you mentioned, conciliation? So conciliation is a little different. Um, uh, as you know, the EEOC is required by statute to attempt to conciliate or settle a matter with an employer only after the agency has determined a reasonable cause exists to believe that the discrimination or retaliation has occurred. So at, at this stage, the EEOC has investigated the case. You may or may not have mediation at that point, but you know they're going to issue a reasonable cause before it goes to the EEOC can then litigate it. By statute, we have to conciliate. So we, we uh, created a new final rule on conciliation, which significantly changed conciliation. And it actually goes into effect on uh, February 16th. Um, so by the time uh, everyone is listening to this uh, podcast, it is uh, fully in, in effect. So let me just back up for a minute and tell you the issues that were occurring um, during conciliation. So the EEOC has found cause. And if it's a case they want to litigate, you know, that's really the next step. So um, the EEOC then would make a demand on the employer to settle the case and whether that is monetary, whether there's other, uh, other aspects to it, you know, dependent on the case. But there wasn't really any set guidelines of what the EEOC would be, how they would deliver that demand. So, the, you know, you would hear stories of demands being delivered with very short 24-hour turn, turnaround. And when employers would ask for additional information, they may not necessarily have got it. You know, information they would need to be able to make the determination whether to accept the demand, how to make a counteroffer, or whether to proceed to litigation. And what um, the demand was even based on or how it was and, calculated in some cases. That's correct. And also the amount of employees, who the employees were or right. the basic facts. So there was a lot of breakdown there when you had potentially um, employers who would want to avoid litigation, as we've been discussing for a host of reasons, and settle these cases. But they needed that additional information to then go write the check, and they, they weren't getting it from the EEOC. So this new rule really um, it is geared to fixing that breakdown of communication by giving the employers who are faced with a reasonable cause and potentially faced with litigation, the essential facts and law supporting the claim. So I actually want to go through, because I think it, it's just so important to everyone out there to now know what the EEOC has to do before, when it makes a demand in conciliation. And again, so, for, so this goes to, and I'm sorry, so this just to set the stage again, this goes to that transparency goal that you've talked about um, in terms of allowing all the parties to the proceedings, um, a sense as to what the EOC is thinking about, how they're, and why they're going about it the way they're going about it. Uh, and so once now we're at the part of the process, the charge comes, you did a position statement, you've responded to requests for information documents, the investigator and the commission makes an initial determination, finding if there is reasonable cause. Um, it's at that point where we're now talking about this conciliation effort. Yes, we're very far down the road at this point, and it is, you know, to meet those goals of transparency and how do we help victims of discrimination, you know, get what they deserve. Perfect. So, so what are the things now the final rule uh, provides? So now in every conciliation, the EEOC must provide the following information to the employers. First, a written summary of the known facts and non-privileged information that the EEOC relied on in its reasonable cause finding, including identifying known aggrieved individuals or known groups of aggrieved individuals for whom relief is being sought. Second, a written summary of the EEOC's legal basis for finding reasonable cause, including an explanation of how the law was applied to the facts. Third, the basis of the monetary or other relief, including the calculations underlying the initial conciliation proposal and a written explanation. Then the EEOC has to advise the employer in writing that the EEOC has designated the case a systemic class or pattern or practice, as well as the basis for that designation, if that case rise to one of those uh, more significant cases. And you know, one of the most important parts to me is to provide the employer with at least 14 calendar days to respond to the EEOC's initial conciliation proposal. So I believe this really is going to address a disconnect that um, is going to allow cases to settle, that um, this information is going to come out one way or the other if the EEOC brings a litigation. The EEOC is going to have to disclose that information in federal court. 
So, you know, in a good faith conciliation here, um, to, to do that, if we have that information, we should give it to the employer, which this rule, you know, requires a good amount of that, and then give the employer some time, 14 calendar days, to respond. So instead of having these short demand windows where you know you as an attorney can't even get to your client who needs to get to somebody else, whether it's an insurance carrier, whether it's an accountant, whether it's somebody else who are going to really break down the math on that, you know, per employee, per cause of action, um, you know, within the categories of damages as well, you know, the EEOC is going to give a good amount of that information now, and for the employers to make a reasonable decision whether to accept that offer or to make a counteroffer, but really based on the facts that the EEOC has. And this is significantly different. And is this done or is any part of the conciliation done like a mediation in terms of a joint session, either virtually or, or in the same room? Or is this really going back and forth, uh, either in writing or by phone? Is there a mediation aspect to the conciliation process? Um, there can be a mediation aspect on on as part of this, but it's really the agency who's negotiating on behalf of the claims the agency has for these aggrieved individuals. Now, whether these individual employees may have additional claims, whether they're represented by their own counsel gets a little more complex, but as far, it is not a mediator mediation where you have a third party neutral mediator. It's more of a, you know, back and forth um, settlement negotiation um, between the parties. Great. And um, so how has that been? Uh, and so that's just becoming effective now, essentially, today. That's right. At the time of this recording, it's the, the first day the rule is going to affect. So um, it is, uh, we will see. <laughs> and then the next part, as far as uh, transparency goes, as far as um, bringing the right types of cases, is the, the litigation delegation. And this was changed um, last month as well. To really understand the EEOC's litigation process, you need to take a step back. Uh, as you know, the EEOC has its own independent litigating authority. And um, as you also know, litigating uh, if the EEOC litigates, it carries the full force and weight of the federal government. It's a very serious matter for all those involved. Um, accordingly, uh, Congress gave the commissioners the authority to commence or intervene litigation. The general counsel's legal authority is actually just to conduct the litigation, but it's the commissioners who authorize the litigation. Um, although you know Congress explicitly provides commissioners with the authority to litigate, since 1995, uh, a lot of that delegate, a lot of that litigation authority has actually been uh, delegated out, and it was further delegated in 2012 and 2016, where. Um, delegated so much so the commissioners weren't voting on the vast majority of cases that the EEOC was filing. Under the previous delegations, the commission was only approving around 7% of the cases that were actually filed, even though it's our statutory authority to um, approve these litigations. So under uh, chair, former Chair Dillon's leadership, initial changes were made in March of 2020, and further changes were made on January 13th. So I'm just going to explain the document that we have now on our litigation authority. Great. Um, so the new litigation authority um, requires the commissioners essentially to either see or vote on every cases. And as you know, the EEOC, like all agencies, are, have limited resources. So when the commission votes on a case, um, it speaks volumes to the EEOC's priorities and its commitments to the legal arguments in those cases in those cases. And again, it carries the full weight of the federal government and uh, these cases are very, very significant and serious. So the new litigation delegation authority automatically, I'm gonna list cases that will come to the commission, all five of us for a vote. And then whenever something does come to us for a vote, you need a majority of the commissioners to approve it or it's disapproved. So now with five commissioners, we would take at least three um, before the litigation can be approved. So the cases we see, no matter what, are cases involving an allegation of systemic discrimination or pattern or practice of discrimination, which we talked about earlier. Those are generally very significant cases. Um, cases expected to involve a major expenditure of agency resources, including staff or extensive discovery or expert witnesses. Another category that automatically comes to us is cases dealing with issues where the commission has taken a position contrary to precedent in the circuit in which the case will be filed. Another category is cases presenting issues um, which the EEOC proposes to take a position contrary to the precedent 
um, that the EEOC has said in the past. And then, you know, there's sort of a catch-all where any larger case or cases that implicate a novel area of law or one that is likely to generate a lot of publicity, you know, should come to the commissioners to vote to determine if we um, want to use our resources there and it's the best use of our agency resources. So for any of those cases that don't fit in those categories, um, maybe just like, you know, your typical uh, sexual harassment case, a single plaintiff, um, something like that, it will be circulated to the commissioners for a vote. So if uh, a majority of commissioners believe that case that doesn't meet one of those categories outlined before should be voted on, the majority of commissioners can then move that case to be voted on. So it's, it's a little technical, but essentially it gives the uh, majority of the commission the ability to vote on every single litigation, even if it doesn't meet one of those categories in the beginning. And if, if the majority of commissioners don't believe that case meets one of those um, prongs, then it just basically the general counsel after five days has authority to file that case. So I believe that these changes, which I um, supported, um, restores a, accountability to the agency's litigation program following our statutory authority um, that the Senate confirmed commissioners are the ones to authorize litigation. Does the public know how the voting goes and for what cases? Well, that's a great question. And um, it's actually now for the first time, um, the public will know how we vote on everything, not just litigation. So uh, former Chair Dillon in 2019 instituted publicly posting all the commissioners' votes. So no matter how we vote, whether it's a guidance, whether it's a regulation, whether it's a litigation, whether it's the uh, filing amicus brief, monthly they're posted on our website. And there's a direct link on our main page. Um, and you could see how all of us voted. And um, it's, it's really nicely laid out. You see the commissioner's name, approved, disapproved. And then if something is approved, you'll see the press release or the litigation or the link to that actual document. So again, in the overarching principles of, of full transparency, you know, you can go on and I hope you do and, and see how I vote and the public can as well. I think it's very important. Uh, and you, you mentioned a moment ago um, amicus briefs. Uh, I know there have been some uh, changes to the uh, amicus program. What, what's been the EEOC's involvement um, with amicus briefs and uh, what's going to be different? Well, the EEOC has a, a robust amicus program uh, where we file in, uh, cases around the country. Um, there was some tweaks to the amicus uh, delegation approval process that was actually approved unanimously. It essentially, um, not to get too much in the weeds, it, it gives the commissioners a lot more oversight on the authorization and policy positions of all briefs filed on behalf of the agency. And it also requires that commission vote, which is very important there as well, because, you know, if the EEOC intervenes in a, a circuit court case or a Supreme Court case, it, uh, it will certainly um, carry a lot of weight. So it's important that that comes to the commission as well. And when we're talking about, just one last question, we're talking about um, commissioners voting uh, on the types of cases that you, uh, you identified before. Uh, is that sort of a generalized vote, a generalized um, vote on priorities and where the EEOC wants to expend its resources? Or is that dependent in any way on geography, where the case may be or what the issue may be in different district offices around the country? Does geography yeah. play any role in that? It does because a lot of, you know, the, the cases are presented to the commissioners from the various regional attorneys around the country. And uh, in there, they brief the reasons why they believe this is an important case for the agency, why it's an important case for their circuit, for their reason, for their, uh, for their region, for their state. So it, it certainly implicates a lot of um, localized uh, issue as well, um, unique to those regional attorneys. But that is all, you know, information that we do receive before voting. So we have a very, you know, and, and having, seeing the whole country, you know, from here in DC, the commissioners really um, get a chance through that process to understand the, the more uh, regional issues for those circuits. And so that's how it's coming up to a vote to the commissioners in DC. It's coming through the various regional or district offices. It comes through the regional attorney. It all comes from the general counsel technically, but they're, they're brought up through the regional attorneys. Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit about guidance uh, and uh, what changes 
the EEOC has made in terms of uh, first issuing guidance and then uh, dealing with the ability to search uh, for specific guidance. And then we can get into uh, a few specific topics of guidance recently issued by the EEOC. But just to start off, what, what's, what's been different when it comes to uh, the EEOC issuing guidance um, since you've been there? Well, you know, it, you're going to get sick of me saying this, but it's good that somebody from the government is saying transparency. Absolutely. Um, so we, we put out um, a rule on guidance. And this final rule, you know, that went through uh, the commission vote is a rule on issuing guidance. And the final rule makes guidance documents first. It makes it readily available to the public, ensures that guidance is treated as non-binding and does not overstep legal authority which we won't get into because that's for a different kind of podcast. <laughs> um, but, you know, as a whole, the, the guidance really requires a notice and comment period for significant guidance. So the guidance that will, um, you know, especially our religion guidance, which was over 100 pages, that went out for notice and comment. If you may, may recall a few years ago, the first draft of the harassment guidance, out, guidance went out. So documents like that that are so significant, that are so large, will go out to public comment where everyone can write in and you know, tell us what we got right, tell us what we got wrong, and add provisions we may have missed. The rule also establishes, and this is so important, uh, for the first time, a public petition process for the issuance of new guidance, amendment of guidance, or repeal of guidance. So now the public can write in and essentially petition the EEOC to change something, to withdraw something, or amend guidance. Um, for our existing guidance, we now have a searchable index where you can just go in there and search all of our guidance and technical assistance. And part of this was repealing a lot of older guidance, technical assistance publications and informal discussion letters. And as you know, doing a weekly podcast, the law literally can change um, weekly. So it, we actually got rid of 60 outdated policy statements, guidance documents that were no longer um, value, uh, provide that value. So there are staff members that are, I guess, continuously reviewing prior guidance and determining whether they are outdated, whether they need amendments or, or whether they should just be uh, rescinded altogether? Yeah, it was a big project that, that occurred um, led by former chair uh, Dylan to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, they came up with uh, over 60 documents. So I was really proud of that effort. So, and then the final thing on, and sorry, I'm going to say it again, transparency, the, uh, a tool which is, is just so cool, and I, I really want everyone to check out. It's called EEOC Explore, which is a state-of-the-art, um, user-friendly mapping tool that gives users access to the data we collect. Um, and we'll talk about data collection in a little bit. But as you know from our EEO data collection forms, the EEOC gets a lot of data. Um, and we have this data which analyzes 56 million employees um, and 73,000 employers nationwide. And it's actually, if you go on the website, called the EEOC Explorer, you see a map of the United States. And you can go there and you can do categories such as location, sex, race, ethnicity, industry sector through NIACS codes, really break it down on the types of claims and the types of um, how these uh, industries are populated by the laws we enforce and the data we collect. So I really encourage you to check that out. You can really see a lot of our, uh, how our data is, uh, can be used. And in terms of the guidance coming from the EEOC, and certainly the last uh, couple of months since December, people are uh, expectedly uh, very focused on EEOC guidance. I know in December, the EEOC issued long-awaited guidance uh, related to vaccines uh, and COVID-19. And without getting too much into the weeds of the specific guidance, and we'll touch on a few of them, um, what is the process uh, that the EEOC uh, goes through in determining what topic is one that warrants specific guidance? Well, a lot of it is from obviously what's happening in the world, what's happening in, in the, the news and, and COVID really, which we'll talk about later. Um, no need to talk about our guidance because you have multiple podcasts on it, but um, you know, it really is where can we help people comply with these complex laws and what guidance is so outdated. And there's been so many changes in cases or just the way industries operate that we really need to update them. And, you know, a few here that I want to talk about, it, it kind of uh, exemplifies that point. So for instance, we put out guidance on the opioid uh, uh, issues. So the use of uh, oxycodone or other opioids in for employees and for healthcare providers. So 
as you know, the opioid crisis is just horrible. In 2016, 64,000 people died. 2.1 million people have uh, opioid disorder. And in 2017, President Trump declared it a national emergency. So that's something where we would then look at and say, look, how do, can we provide guidance to employees, employers on dealing with this issue? So we put out two different documents on opioid use. And I don't want to say opioid use in the workplace, but those who um, have opioid, legal opioid um, prescriptions and may suffer from opioid addiction this is very serious. And then we talk about how it interplays with our laws, right? So some of the main takeaway here is about having an opioid addiction because it is you know, a national emergency and it's such a public health crisis that does not, didn't know that just right off the bat. And second, you know, we talk about if you have a legal opioid addiction and you're being, it's being managed by a doctor, that would then trigger a potential ADA disability to start an interactive process under the ADA. And this guidance goes through that opioid-specific interactive uh, process, guidance for employees, guidance for employers, and also we talk about how healthcare providers can work with the employee and the employer to help these people you know, get accommodations in the workplace so they could eventually um, get better. So, you know, to your point about where do we go with guidance is, you know, where is the news taking us or where is, you know, what are the issues in, in the, in the U S and, and another great point on that is veterans guidance. We put out in November of 2020 information about uh, veterans in the workplace and how the uh, Americans with Disability Act and the USERA Uniform Service Employment and Reemployment Rights Act uh, deal with the laws we enforce. And you know, this is another one where you know, 41% of Gulf War um, veterans are disabled compared to 25% of all vets. And there's a lot of um, post 9/11 veterans in the workplace that have these service-related disabilities. And you know, what we found there was a lot of myths and stereotypes related to. Uh, hiring veterans or employing veterans. And then veterans themselves face discrimination based, based upon potentially the mental or physical disabilities they have, which may not be as obvious as some other uh, disabilities. Because we found a lot of time, and the guidance talks about this, that veterans may not view their service-related injuries as a disability under the ADA as other people may. So we really put out guidance, again, for veterans, for employers to to really come forward and engage in a veteran-specific interactive process and tell the veterans that, look, if you have a disability rating from the VA, which as you see those statistics from the post-9-11 wars, a lot of them do, it's probably covered by the ADA. So you're already at a start there by your veterans, uh, your disability rating by the VA. So again, we, we go through that interactive process specific to veterans. We talk about reasonable accommodations specific to the types of um, disabilities um, a veteran may have. And also we give tips and best practices how to recruit and hire disabled veterans. So, you know, those two um, documents are great examples of, you know, what, where the EEOC needs to be, keeping up with trends, helping people who need the most. Another example of, you know, how we come to guidance is, and a great example of that is our religious guidance. So that hadn't been updated for over 12 years. And, you know, since 2008, there was a significant amount of U.S. Supreme Court cases dealing with religion in the workplace. So that is something that just needed, opposed to creating new guidance on the opioid and veterans, this was something that needs updating, needed updating, and we were able to do it. This went out through public comment. The document was, I believe, 130, 140 pages. It was very, very significant. Very substantive. Um, very substantive, and it really goes through you know, typical situations where uh, religious discrimination may arise, provides guidance to employers on how to balance the needs of individuals in a diverse workplace in light of a lot of Supreme Court cases that came out. And um, again, it's, it goes through dealing with religious accommodations. Um, as you know, there's a lot of exceptions in this area as well, so it goes through those um, details. And then you know, a final example uh, on this, because you brought it up, and I will uh, take that opportunity to uh, talk about all we're doing, is rescinding like a policy statement on. So we rescinded a policy statement on arbitration guidance that was around since 1997. In 1997, the EEOC took a position um, about disfavoring mandatory arbitration agreements between employers and employees. So that's the EEOC actually saying we're taking a position we disfavor them. So that was rescinded because. Um, there was countless Supreme Court cases since 1997 
in the employment context, outside of the employment context, about the validity of arbitration. So we took down that policy statement because um, of all the Supreme Court cases. You know, in no way, shape, or form were we saying that the EEOC is prohibited from bringing cases under, even if there's an arbitration agreement because of other Supreme Court cases. But you know, it's just something like that, updating as time goes by and really identifying that how we could better serve um, the public. Does the question of whether to issue guidance and then if you are going to issue guidance, what the substance of the guidance will be, is that subject to vote by the commissioners? Um, depending on the level of guidance. So some of them are done, um, the veterans guidance. It, it was uh, resuscitating a lot of the existing laws and it wasn't really significant um, policy change. It was more of a uh, more of an update, situational awareness of what's going on with veterans or what's going on in the opioid crisis, opposed to, you know, rescinding the policy statement on arbitration needed a vote, the religious um, guidance needed a vote because it was so, as you mentioned, so substantive. If you read these things, you know, a lot of th they will need to vote um, because it is changing the policies of the agency, opposed to just bringing light to an issue that, that's in the news where we're applying, you know, our longstanding principles which haven't changed opposed to really updating some of the more um, larger topics. And all of these uh, guidance materials can be found on eeoc.gov as well, correct? Every one of them, yep. And you can use our searchable uh, tool and uh, just type it in and it'll pull it up right away. That was really informative, really substantive, and I hope you all got something out of that. Uh, but wait, there is more. There is more. Tomorrow, I will have part two of my sit-down with Commissioner Sonderling. We will talk about such things as some EEOC opinion letters that were just recently issued. Some of the hot topics that people are talking about in 2021, including paid data and paid data collection, wellness rules, of course, COVID-19 and the COVID-19 guidance that the EEOC issued just this past December. Where is the EEOC going in the next few years? I will actually ask Commissioner Sonderling about his reaction to the perception that seems to be out there that the EEOC is very much employee-leaning and very much pro-employee. And we will also talk in great detail about the resources and outreach capabilities that the EEOC has and will continue to have for employers and employees alike. So if you really enjoyed today's part one, don't miss tomorrow's part two. As always, I really appreciate everybody listening to all of these episodes on Employment Law Now. And until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.